sort of never uh, ceases to amaze me that in preparing for a worship service like this, how often things sort of converge on that. And, and as we'll see in a few minutes here, the main theme of the message this morning is about the present and available reality of God's kingdom for those who follow. And we didn't plan this worship song, and I, and I saw it on the docket this morning, and it just... For me, I think I'd rather just stand down there and sing right now for another half an hour. I mean, we'll do this work, um, but I think it just does speak to the consistency uh, of message in God's kingdom when he's bringing people together that care about those things that matter. So I hope I can just play a part in that for you this morning, though I realized when I got into the car this morning that I really should have known better. Uh, Kevin was so very specific like three months ago when he said, Peter... I need you to come on January, what is it, the 8th, 9th, 9th? I need you to come on January 9th to speak. And, and when he said that, I thought, well, he, he's being very specific. Got an email from him this last week, and he said, Greetings from sunny Florida. <laughs> Fool me once, Kevin. <laughs> Shame on you, right? Okay, so um, we're just going to go ahead and, and for the record, uh, get it taped right now that as I was sitting in my car this morning and I'm thinking of his email from sunny Florida and my, and my car thermometer is reading, I quit, um, <laughs> that there must be a warm coffee sometime that Kevin will show up at my door and uh, he will be my angel uh, at that moment when he gets back. So um, kidding aside, it is, uh, as I was saying to some of the worship team before we started, a real pleasure for me to be here. Uh, Kevin Lakin asked me, so where do you go and speak like this? And I said, nowhere. Uh, and the reason is, is that this, as some of you know, um, is a place that I would choose to say yes to because it is so much dialed into the fabric of my own journey. Some of you know I grew up in this church. And because of that, and not just because of the walls of this place, but because of the people here, uh, so much of my journey as a follower in the kingdom of God was established in this place. And, and from those places moving forward to now where I teach at Bethel University and, uh, and just have a chance to be a part of that and come here occasionally. Some of my family is up there. We came for Christmas Eve service too. And it just is really a, a, a privilege and a pleasure to be back. So uh, I am happy to be here. My understanding by way of introduction is that we are going to be moving into a new series starting this week with me on the parables of Jesus. And Kevin asked me as we get ready to go into Matthew 13 and beyond with the different parables that are upcoming, he asked me to not necessarily get into the content of the parables proper, but to actually uh, just speak from more of a 30,000 foot level about parables in general. Uh, specifically, why parables? Why does Jesus speak and parables, and really the answer that I take and, and the cue that I take for this uh, comes right out of Matthew 13. Pretty simple, really. Verse 10, the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. So a couple things by way of introduction with that before we pray and move into the sermon proper. The first thing that I think we can say about that as we start getting into this series is that whatever else the parables are, in them Jesus gives us a picture of what life is like in the kingdom of heaven. 
He gives us a picture of the kind of kingdom he is bringing. In fact, the kind of kingdom that is actually manifest in him as he does his ministry throughout first century Israel. The parables really are just about kingdom life. And they're an invitation to live into this kingdom. And in some ways, we could just stop right there. Now, we won't, but we could. We could stop right there. That's the, the main point of this, is that the parables invite people into the kingdom. But I don't know if you're anything like me, is that I hear that and, and I'm excited for that, but, but I kind of like to dig in a little deeper into the text. And I know, I'm a you know, Bible theology teacher, so I'm a bit of a nerd that way. Um, but I do, I like to dig in further into just really any kind of text, into backstories, into what was going on in the time of the text. A different example of that, for my 40th birthday this last November, one of my dear friends, uh, who is an advanced placement literature teacher in Hopkins High School, gave me a copy of The Iliad. Homer's Iliad about uh, the story of Achilles and his anger and how that was part of the Trojan War and all of this. And his gift for me was this copy of the book, The Iliad. And then he said, and Peter, I will take you out uh, on a number of different times and I'll just teach you the whole backstory. All of the Greek mythology and all of the gods and goddesses and, and all of the characters and all of what was at play and what was happening. And, you know, again, I'm a nerd. And so I was like, great, this sounds fantastic. And so... We, uh, for me, I love that kind of thing. I, I, my knowledge of Greek mythology is limited to the Percy Jackson series right now that I love reading for my kids. <laughs> well, no, me. And, uh, and so in looking at that, I was excited to do that. And he took me out this last Friday, and I had read the first five chapters of the Iliad. And it was good. It's not interesting. I get kind of lost from time to time. There's lots of characters. Don't understand why some of the gods and goddesses are uh, on, you know, one side or the other. And I, I read those first five chapters, and he took me out on Friday, and he just spent an hour of time. And he walked me through, start to finish, all of these different dimensions of Greek history and mythology, and I was just riveted to the whole thing. And now, when I go back to the text, when I go back to the Iliad and read it, I, I'm reading it, so much more is coming to, coming to life. I understand what's going on. And I think you can probably see where the analogy is going. The, the central focus here is that Jesus says, I teach in parables because to you it has been given the kingdom of heaven. That's important. But there's a lot more of a backstory here that as you get into the parables in the weeks ahead, that I hope what will begin to unfold for you is a picture uh, a more full picture of why Jesus was doing what he was doing. So one last thing before we pray and get into the central part of the sermon. As I did my research on the backstory over these past couple weeks, there was one dimension of this backstory that stood out for me again and again. It kept coming out and, and, and it sort of gripped my heart and my mind and I realized I just pay attention to that. And, and the part of the backstory was this. I was reminded again and again of the fact that Jesus, though he was the divine Son of God, though he was that, he was in that culture at that time, first and foremost among the Jewish people, a rabbi. And as a rabbi, uh, he did what all the other rabbis did in that day. He spoke in parables. And the other rabbis did as well. But as we're going to find out, here, hopefully, in the next 
20 minutes or so, that Jesus was a very different kind of rabbi. Different in any number of ways. And when we understand that, my hope is that the picture that was sort of blossoming in me in these last couple of weeks uh, will begin to blossom in all of us. That the, the picture of this rabbi, though located in first century Israel, has been raised and he is now the risen rabbi. And when we understand the significance of him being a rabbi, that we will see a picture of him standing in front of all of us. And not just to the disciples of the first century saying, to you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But that there be an invitation in that for all of us to look again at our risen rabbi and say, hmm, tell me about those secrets. I'd like to learn some more. That's my hope for this morning. Let's pray as we begin and then I'll get into this backstory. God, the, the words of the song are just echoing in the back of my mind and I hope in my spirit And that is just let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things for all of us to intersect in my life as I speak and in our lives as we listen that that your kingdom would come into all of the places in which it needs to come as we go through this this morning. And that in that we would see at the end of the day cutting through all of the traditions and all of what we think about life and faith that would cut through all of that, we would see a picture of you standing as the risen rabbi, inviting all of us to yet again come into your kingdom. That is good. Ask these things by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so, you know, I'm a college professor. I've got to do the, the college backstory stuff here in the research. And so I'll give you as much as I can in terms of some of the context here. But when I use this word, Jesus, as rabbi, one thing that's important to understand about that is that rabbis in Jesus' day, they, they were people, or men in particular, who distinguished themselves by their earnest desire to study and to teach the Torah. Now, the Torah is one of those words that gets chucked around from time to time, and you think, yeah, I've heard it before, I can't remember what it refers to. What it refers to is simply just the first five books of the Bible. It's Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I know that because my daughter Anna is in Adventure Club here at Wyzetta Free, and she's in the process of learning the song that you sing about the 66 books of the Bible. So if I forget the Torah, I just go to her and she sings me a song. It works great. And so the rabbis, uh, when they taught from the Torah, there's an understanding that the Torah really, in those five books, the foundation for all of Jewish law, for all of Jewish thought, for all of Jewish ethic, for all of Jewish social organization, everything about life among the Jews was contained in the Torah. And so the, the teachers of the Torah, the rabbis, were, were given places of great honor because they, they could comprehend and apprehend and teach the Torah. People love them. And of course, we'll find out in a bit, the Pharisees were among these teachers of the Torah, and they loved being loved. Okay? It's going to be different than Jesus. But Jesus was among these people and among the rabbis, which is why in your text you'll sometimes see Jesus referred to as master or teacher. It's because those words are indicative of the fact that he was a rabbi. But he was very different from the other rabbis that were around him. 
And some of the most infamous of those rabbis were the Pharisees, as I mentioned. And it's a group he's constantly in combat with. I love the stories of the back and forth between the Pharisees and Jesus. And now Jesus constantly wins the day, and they're just, rah, you know, they're just angry yet again. And then they get more and more mad, and of course they, they end up killing him. But he's constantly in combat with them. And there's two particular ways this morning about how different Jesus was as a rabbi when compared to the Pharisees around him that's relevant for our understanding then of the parables. So he was different in any number of ways, but there's two in particular I want to highlight for you this morning. Okay? The first way in which Jesus was different from the Pharisees around him was he was different in terms of the authority by which he taught anything, including the parables. He was different in terms of his authority. As the Pharisees interpreted and taught the Torah, they were constantly appealing to this, this big, vast body of unwritten knowledge called the oral tradition. Okay? Now, really quickly, what the oral tradition was, is it was all of the interpretations and all of the teachings that had been passed along from when the Torah had originally been given all the way through now current-day Israel. Okay? Because the deal was is that the Torah couldn't, couldn't cover or govern all of the new circumstances in which the Jews might find themselves. So they didn't know if maybe they were honoring their father and mother correctly or what adultery meant or keeping the Sabbath, that sort of thing. And so it was the job of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law to interpret the Torah to then govern a given life circumstance. Okay? One of my favorites of these, because in and of itself, the oral tradition probably was a good thing, but there was 622 different principles by the time we find ourselves in first century Israel that had developed. That was part of the oral tradition. And one of my favorite ones of them that demonstrates how the Pharisees really were these just lovers of power and how they just wanted to control the people was one that had to do with plowing the ground on the Sabbath. If you were a first century Jew, and you're just walking around, uh, maybe from house to house, and it's the Sabbath, and on the bottom of your sandal, there is uh, a slight loosening of a fastener on the bottom of your sandal. Let's call it a nail. And the nail is slightly loose, maybe sticking out ever so far beneath your sandal, and you're walking along, and you just happen to scuff the ground, and in scuffing the ground, you would cause a little gouge in the ground. That was literally considered plowing by the Pharisees. And you were literally subject to discipline and judgment just for that. It gives us a little picture of why Jesus was just, he would say things like, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're tying heavy weights down on people who would love to get into the kingdom. And you're not lifting a finger even to help get those weights off. There were 622 principles. These poor Jews didn't even know which way to turn. And the Pharisees had their authority located in their understanding of the Torah, and they used it to lord over the people. And not only that, as they did their interpretation, it was expected of them to sort of name drop as they went along. And so if they were to give an interpretation of the Torah then what they would do is it was expected that they would have to refer back to some past rabbi who had said or done the same kind of thing. And if they didn't do it, nobody would give them the time of day. One example that I read about was one of the greatest of all Jewish rabbis was a man named Hillel. 
actually a rabbinical school was founded after him on his name, and even he had to appeal to past tradition to get his points heard. It says, the great teacher Hillel had talked about a matter all day, but the other rabbis did not receive his teaching until he said, thus I heard from Shemaniah and Absaliah. Oh, then we're good. Okay, he had to locate his authority in somebody from before. By contrast, when Jesus teaches, he doesn't appeal to past authority. When he's going through the parables, he's not referring to other rabbis. When he's talking about life in the kingdom of God, he's not leaning on traditional interpretations. Instead, what you'll see, and you see this again and again in Scripture, he says these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, Now, that's one of those phrases that, for me, I would normally sort of skip over. Certainly, I'm not going to memorize it as part of my Iwana program. It's not one of the 30 most important verses, right? It's part of just how they speak back in that day, kind of the funny tone, truly, truly stuff. I kind of, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, Rick, I would like you to give me some coffee. You know, it's kind of, be sound kind of funny, wouldn't it? And that's how they talked back then. No, there's more to it than that. When Jesus said that, and I read this quote this week, the Greek term for this phrase, truly, truly, I say to you, is the Greek term, amen, in truth or truly. And it appears over a hundred times in the Gospels, always on the lips of Jesus. Truly, I say to you, means confirmed or verified. And when Jesus uses this term, it's another indication of his extraordinary sense of divine authority. Rather than appealing to the authority of his predecessors as the other rabbis did, Jesus appeals only to his own authority. His words must be heeded because they're the very words of God. One of my favorite stories about the power of Jesus in particular happens in uh, Luke chapter 4 when he teaches about, uh, he unrolls the scroll of uh, of the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue at Nazareth. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and freedom for the captives and to declare that now is the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and it says, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Because he's ready to teach now. When rabbis sat down, uh, they're ready to teach. And he says to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Claiming that he is the Messiah. It was a big deal in that moment, because rabbis typically taught about the Messiah that would come. Jesus is saying, I am that Messiah. And he goes through this whole story, and at the end of it, the people don't know what to do. They're amazed at the power that is in his words. They, they acknowledge it. And yet, because he's not appealing to past authority at all, they want to kill him. It doesn't work for them. He's, he's in his authority. And so the, the first way, for me anyway, that stood out, in which Jesus was a different rabbi, was the authority by which he taught included the parables. And it made me say, hmm, I I don't know what's in the weeks ahead in terms of what's going to be talked about in the parables as they begin to unfold. But but it made me say, hmm, maybe, maybe I should just kind of once again listen. What does the rabbi have to say who all authority is anchored in him about what life in the kingdom is like? Could, could, I, could I learn some stuff from that? More on that in just a minute. The second way, quickly, that Jesus was different as a rabbi, and you probably know this, was related to the kind of people that then he invited into this kingdom. All secrets of the kingdom will be opened to you. 
Rabbis often chose disciples. In fact, almost always did. And when they chose these disciples, they chose them from among the best and the brightest young people of that world. When you're a young boy, you would study the Torah. And for those young boys who excelled in their learning of the Torah, they would continue on until ultimately, if they were lucky, they would be chosen by a very prominent rabbi to follow him. It was the religious elite that were chosen. And of course, as you know, it's not this way with Jesus. He didn't search out the Jewish Ivy Leaguers. He didn't sift through resumes. He, he walked the countryside and the highways and the byways. And then suddenly he would stop. And the four grimy, smelly, earthy, likely unremarkable fishermen, he says to them, and to all of you, follow me. And to a couple political activists, he says to them, follow me. And to one of the hated tax collectors, he said to him, follow me. And from that core of 12 even, there was this ragtag band of the lame and the sick and the blind and crowds with sinners of all kinds that no respected rabbi would associate with. It was just killing the Pharisees. Again, one of my favorite stories in this is the Mary and Martha story. Familiar story probably to many of you in here. Uh, the way that I've always heard this story has been along the lines of the fact, well, here's what we want to learn from this story. Martha was doing the wrong thing in the kitchen. She was busy, 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 busy. But Mary, oh Mary, she was sitting and just spending time with Jesus. And so in our discipleship journey, really, we, what we don't want to do, we don't want to just be busy, busy, busy for the kingdom and just not even, we just want to spend time with our Savior. Okay, so that's how I've always heard this story, right? Well, I take my cues here on this one from a theologian called N.T. Wright, one of the most respected theologians I know of in this day. And I really enjoy reading his stuff. But he says this about the Mary and Martha story. And it's a profound call to the kind of disciples Jesus was calling. So if this breaks your box open, it does mine, and just join me in this. N.T. Wright says, I think of the remarkable story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. Most of us grew up with the line that Mary was the active type. I mean, Martha was the active type, and Mary the passive or contemplative type, in that Jesus is simply affirming the importance of both and even the priority of devotion to him. That devotion is undoubtedly part of the importance of the story, but far more obvious to any first century reader and to many readers in Turkey, the Middle East, and other parts of the world to this day would be the fact that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet within the male part of the house, rather than being kept in the back rooms with the other women. This, I am pretty sure, is what really bothered Martha. No doubt she was cross. Now, he's a British theologian, so cross. He's kind of Mary Poppins-like in that. No doubt she was cross at being left to do all the work. But the real problem behind all of this was that Mary had cut clean across one of the most basic social conventions. It is as though in today's world you were inviting me to stay at your house, and when it came time to go to bed, I put up a camp bed in your bedroom. We have our own clear but unstated rules about whose space is which, and so did they. Here's the thing. Mary had just flouted them completely. And what does Jesus say to her? Jesus declares that she is right to do so. Not right to be contemplative versus active. 
She's right in that moment to be sitting in that space at his feet. She is sitting at his feet, a phrase which doesn't mean what it would mean today. The adoring student gazing up in admiration and love at the wonderful teacher. As is clear from the use of this phrase elsewhere in the New Testament, for instance, Paul, as he sat at Gamaliel's feet, to sit at the teacher's feet is a way of saying you are being a student. You're picking up the teacher's wisdom and learning, and in that very practical world, you wouldn't do that just for the sake of informing your own mind and heart, but in order, and this sort of blows me away, in order that you would be a rabbi yourself. And Jesus looked at Mary sitting at his feet, in a place where she didn't belong, wanting to be a follower of him, ultimately then so she could do all of the things that the rabbi did because that's what it means to be a disciple. If a rabbi took on a disciple, you're expected to be able to teach like the rabbi taught, you're expected to do the things the rabbi could do, all of them, and you're expected to be in character like the rabbi would be. And Jesus comes and sits at, or Mary comes and sits at his feet and Jesus says, ah, you're right to do so. The sick, the lame, the blind, fishermen, tax collectors, women who have been rejected in that culture, all of them, Jesus says, here's the deal. In my parables, I'm going to give you an invitation into my kingdom. For everybody. And all authority is in me in this. Don't worry about what everybody else is saying. Don't worry about what's going on. Focus just on me as your rabbi and I will teach you the secrets of the kingdom. So those two ways that were most different at least stood out for me and, and, and for the journey ahead in the parables here at church. And I thought about that. I thought, so how, what are the implications of these two facts? I already sort of hit on some of them. But I think the two things that jumped out to me in our remaining time by way of application or implication, it relates to each of those. And the first one has to do with the traditions that we carry and the oral traditions that we carry and how sometimes maybe those even prevent us from hearing afresh and anew the invitation to live in the kingdom of God. The second one has to do with the kind of people Jesus calls. So firstly, what this did for me is that knowing that this was the kind of rabbi Jesus was and that all authority was in him and not in the tradition of his day, it made me wonder, are there dimensions of my own past and my own understanding of spirituality and faith and Christianity and whatever labels we might use, are there dimensions of that that prevent me and my tradition, that prevent me from hearing, again, what life really is like in the kingdom? So tied down, I get to saying, this is the truth. This is the way it has to be. We've always done it this way. That I like that kind of worship. This is how we need to do the preaching. No, we need to make sure we have these kind of offerings. All of this kind of stuff. Do I, do I ever get so focused and I have my own 622 principles of oral tradition that like the Pharisee, the kingdom comes and I, and I don't even see it. And I don't even see it. I mean, don't get me wrong in that. Our traditions are good. They're part of what anchor us as people in a journey as the traditions. But I sometimes wonder if those traditions, we, we lose sight of the fact that they weren't always traditions. At some point in time, there were things that were fresh and new and different and maybe part of the movement of God's Spirit in a place and time. But so often what we do, like the Israels so often wanted to do, is you build a monument there and you stay there and, and you don't realize that the journey is just one step after another of unfolding more fully into the kingdom of God. I, I, I take my cue again on this 
from the Israelites. I loved it when they had an amazing moment of God in their midst, like when they crossed the Jordan River for the first time into the Promised Land. And what do they do? They spend some time there. And they built a little monument there. And that monument was to remind them of who God is and what God called them to. And there was faithfulness there. And they were thankful for the monument, but they didn't stay there. They looked up their eyes and turned around and said, now what does the journey have for us in front of us? And I think, as I have been through churches and ministries and been a part of so many different kinds of things, I actually was with a, a theological seminary a couple weeks ago, and he said, this guy that did a lot of research on churches that are really vibrant and growing in our world today. He said that there is one characteristic of those churches that as they did this massive national study, there was one characteristic that came to the front again and again. And it didn't matter if the church was Catholic or Protestant, Assemblies of God, Lutheran, Episcopal, it didn't matter. So the one characteristic of the churches that there just seemed to be this life of God permeating and moving was that what that church cared about, first and foremost, was they cared about the fact that the kingdom of God would be present and living and moving and active in all of, uh, in every place, in every form, in every way in those churches. That's what they cared about. And you guys, even this pulpit behind which I stand this morning, it's a tradition. There's hundreds of millions of Christians throughout time and generations that came to a gathering called church and never once heard a sermon from a pulpit. This is a product of a tradition of the last 500 years or so. There's 1,500 years of church life. The only reason why this came into play is there was a season of corruption in the church, so they decided they needed to dedicate themselves for a period of time to sola scriptura, or scripture alone. But now for us, we can't even hardly think about, I mean, church without a pulpit, without a message, without a pastor, what? That can't be church. Except hundreds of millions of, of, of followers of the rabbi have experienced church that way. Does it mean the message is wrong? Does it mean the pulpit? No, of course not. It just means that at the end of the day, what we have in front of us is a risen rabbi who stands and who calls yet again in the same way that he called in the first century. Which brings me to the last part of this sermon. It's about the kind of people he calls. And this one you know, felt like a, just a big weight just, you know, pop right on me this week because it occurred to me that the Pharisees called the religious elite and Jesus was with the people. And guess what? In today's culture, I'm the religious elite. Yeah, I have all the fancy letters. I mean, I see in the bulletin it says Dr. Peter Kastner. I'm not there yet. I'll be defending my dissertation in a couple months. Um, so you can just kind of, you know, wipe that out. Yeah, because maybe it'll hate me. But uh, I have all of the proper... I'm, I'm the elite of that. And it hit me like a ton of bricks as I watched where Jesus was going, as he traveled the highways and the byways. And I thought, you know, if he came down here today and he was standing in front of us, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't say, Peter, you need to introduce me to the people. I think he would turn to all of us in here and he would say, follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. And if I'm lucky, he'd be able to see all through these letters that make me the religious elite. And he would see through all of that. And he wouldn't see Dr. Peter. He would just say, Peter, follow me. Like everybody else, follow me. 
Kevin and I have occasional lunches together, and, and it's just one of those moments for me that's always so helpful to my own spirit, because I do run in a lot of religiously elite circles. And I don't, I, don't, I don't meet too many people, quite frankly, who in their eliteness are just enraptured with following the rabbi, that that's what they care about. And when I sit over lunch with Kevin and, and I see just his passion for that and his desire and, and all these labels get cast aside and he sees me just as Peter and nothing else and it just ministers to who I am. And it reminds me again that all of this stuff aside, and I'm grateful for it, and I'm glad for the journey, but all of it aside, the picture that we have at the end of the day for all of us, for all of us, is a risen rabbi who stands in front and says, follow me. When I'm with Kevin, it helps me put down my nice little Christian mask (laughs) that we all wear, our stiff upper Christian lips that we present for public consumption, Because most of us, in reality, are standing on those same highways and byways of life down which Jesus traveled when he was a rabbi. And most of us, when the fig leaves get tossed aside, are pretty much a ragged collection of people. You don't have to have a PhD or even a vision from the angel Gabriel to observe a bit about the human condition in this world. And and, and because of this, I would just guess that there are marriages even in our room this morning that are in desperate places. And I would just guess that there is a crazy amount of fear that's harbored in the deep places in the soul. Fear of the unknown, fear of illness, fear of what's in front, fear of will they come back. I would just guess that there is all kinds of relational rejection. I would just guess that we are no different than the fishermen and the tax collectors and the blind and the lame and the walk, as pretty as we all make ourselves, as lovely as we all will look in our, in our upper lip, yes, God is good all the time, right? Sometimes I don't feel that way. And yet even in that moment, even in that moment, the rabbi comes and says, yeah, I know. That's why I've come, actually. <laughs> I've come so you don't have to have the stiff upper lip. I've come, follow me. I will teach you about life in the kingdom. I will not take away all of your circumstances, but what I can do is I can teach you how to live in love and joy and peace and get breaths of those in the midst of whatever you're in. Follow me. My kingdom is open. It is real. I teach in parables so that you can see it and hear it and understand it and begin to walk in it. And guess what? Not everybody's going to get it. Not everybody's going to have ears to hear. But to those of you interested, I stand in front of you and say yet again, Yet again, says Jesus, come follow me. I got a lot to teach you about my kingdom, and I would love to have you there. The worship team is going to come up here in a moment again, and we'll just sing about Everlasting God, the song of the prologue. And as Brett and I talked before the service, there's something just even about that idea of the everlasting and this idea of the rabbi calling us to life in the kingdom, that we're participating in something that is far greater than just our daily life. And, and I love these kind of worship songs because it causes me to cast my eyes yet again into the stream of eternity, as a dear man once told me. We're caught up as his followers of the rabbi in the stream of eternity. And I hope just even in the few minutes that we have in this worship song this morning, and then in the weeks ahead, in the parables, and as Jesus is unfolding his kingdom for us, that we can get caught up in the stream of eternity again and follow our risen rabbi. So blessings on you on the journey as you go forward.